0: Every human being has a purpose in life, right? I'm Pastor John, and I'm married to Barbara, who a lot of you know, and Barb is a, is a quiet, serious, very focused human being. So frequently, after 40 years of marriage, I will be sitting there observing my, my wife, and she'll really be focusing in on something, and in those moments, I will you know, slide over next to her and start talking really loud and do everything I possibly can to interrupt her. And she will get so frustrated with me. And, and she doesn't seem to realize that I'm, I'm rescuing her from the abyss of overconcentration. And, and usually what she'll just end up saying to me is, Leave me alone! Which, in, in the language of our marriage, heart is actually translated as, I love you, John. You gotta know your purpose in life, right? By the way, before I tormented Barb, I did the same thing to my parents. As long as you're into something, you might as well do it for your entire life. Just leave me alone. We can all imagine back when we were the little kid who said that, or we've seen little kids say that. Uh, little kids, when they get angry or disappointed about something, they just don't have the words, and, and, the, and they can't deal with the attention and the emotions, and in the face of all of that, all they can spit out is, leave me alone. And, 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 you know, when we look back on those moments, if it was us, you know, usually there's, there's something that we can smile at about that. Uh, because it's part of the human experience, and it's part of who we are as, as an entire race of people. You know, some more than others, I think the American culture with its individualism has a greater tendency to say, leave me alone. You know, government, leave me alone. Church, leave me alone. Neighbors, leave me alone. Frequently, family, leave me alone, and, and so at least culturally, you know, you move from the city to the suburb to the countryside to the to the fallout shelter in the Nevada desert someplace. Leave me alone. I I, I don't want any obligations. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I don't want to have to 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 contribute to anything, and I don't want any rules. Just leave me alone. And and you know, we all recognize that a little bit, and somebody maybe ourselves. But it's not just you know those social things, it's also personally within us. A huge part of addiction is the tendency to, to increasingly isolate over time, to push people away. leave, leave me alone um, for all sorts of reasons. And, and lots of times when people are really sick they, they don't they don't want any visitors, even though study after study finds that, that in, in our moments of vulnerability physically and, and emotionally, community is so much better than isolation. But leave me alone. I'm, I'm sick. Even when people die, you know, I, I don't want a funeral. Just leave me alone, even when I'm dead. It's, it's a big part of, of a lot of us and, and of our world. Just leave me alone. That is a big part of today's gospel lesson as well. It's part of the brilliance of the parable that Jesus tells, a very underappreciated, underappreciated one, I think. Uh, it's such an underappreciated parable that I think it's also frequently misapplied and disastrously so. But if well applied, it's really powerful, and I think it was in a really important story to the evangelist Matthew himself. So let's talk about all that. If we're going to understand the uh, the parable, it's always important to understand its broader context. So let's start there. It's in chapter 21 in Matthew's gospel. As per the scripture introduction, when Michelle read it before, uh, we're in no we're you know we've been in Matthew all year. Uh, We will come to the end of it in November at the end of the church year. But that means as we come to the end of the church year, we also come to the end of Matthew's gospel. So even though we're not in Lent, here's a story that's in Holy Week. Uh, Matthew chapter 21 begins with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Then he goes straight to the temple, overturns the tables of the money changers, leaves town, sleeps overnight in Bethany, and then comes back to town the next morning, waiting for him when he gets there are the chief priests and elders who run that temple, and they lay into him and challenge everything about who he is and what he's doing because they don't want him messing anymore uh, with their temple uh, money exchange system. Uh, That's the broader context of all of that. Um, uh, the, the context that follows is that as decisive as this this parable and the, the debate around it is, it doesn't end it. Chapter 22, uh, various religious leaders keep coming after Jesus, and and their challenges become ever more uh, kind of astute and, and ever more personal. The stakes only get higher in chapter 22. So all of that's kind of boiling around Jesus. The last thing to, that you should know about context... Is, is six times in, in chapter 21, uh, Matthew or Jesus takes the time to point out that the crowds or some element of the crowds of people, they get it. They're on the right path. They, they have some kind of beginning understanding of who Jesus is. And five times in this chapter, either Jesus or Matthew, the evangelist, point out that the chief priests or the elders or the teachers of the Pharisees, in other words, this small cadre of religious leaders, they don't get it. They are obstacles in the path of the good news that Jesus is trying to share. Those statistics will be significant in a little bit. But, but that's, that's the context, okay? So now let's talk parable itself. It's eight verses long. That's longer than the median parable. And Jesus invests it with some really specific images that he doesn't want us to miss. So think about the parable that he tells. Um, Remember, he's being challenged by these chief priests and elders who are saying to him, what you're doing is wrong. You're not from God. You're misguided. Uh, You should listen to us. Uh, They're very possessive of of their position and their beliefs and their control. So to that, Jesus tells this parable of an owner who builds a vineyard, but he doesn't just build any vineyard, he builds a vineyard with a fence, with a wine press, with a watchtower. In other words, this is the -the state-of-the-art vineyard in that world, because A, it's protected from both human and animal interlopers. Birds love to eat grapes. The watchtower would help keep the birds away. And and then what's really state-of-the-art about it is is most of the time wine was produced in the vicinity of the vineyard because it's really hard to transport grapes. This one uh, leapfrogged that by by crushing the grapes on site in that press, and then the juice would be much easier to ship, could be shipped to the owner who would produce it in his his uh, uh, winery, which was apparently located at someone else. So this is the beginning of like uh, the Gallo wine operation that you can be bringing in juice from all over the place and producing it in a single spot. Uh, and, and so that's the vineyard. Most significantly, the people who work for the owner are slaves. Slavery is never a good thing, but most of Jesus' audience would have identified with the slaves because they either felt like they were slaves to the Romans who occupied them, or they were indentured farmers who were working for somebody else. Uh, or they were captured peoples uh, outside of their normal context. Uh, slavery in that world was was not culturally specific. In other words, it wasn't just Africans brought to this country the way slavery worked in this country. Um, it, it had that diversity of both station and and situation. Still not good, but... But again, it's, it's almost the, the, the norm for the audience as opposed to an exception for that particular audience. And, and so it's slaves, the, the norm, who work for the owner, but it's interesting that he hires tenants to run the vineyard. In other words, they're not part of his operation. It's like he outsources it. This is one more thing that's like state-of-the-art about it, except for one little problem, which is they are not with the program. And so when the, when the grapes become ripe, they decide, we're just keeping it for ourselves. What's he going to do about it? Well, what does the owner do about it? He sends his employees. He sends the slaves. Beat them up, stone them, kill them. Sends more slaves. Beat them up, kill them, stone them. And finally, sends a son. Beat him up, kill him, stone them. And then that's where Jesus stops, and he says to those chief priests and elders, so now what's going to happen? And then they're the ones who supply the ending. They say, well, he's going to show up, and he's going to put them to a miserable death, and he's going to hire people who actually do it right. And Jesus, Jesus the debater and storyteller, is just like, you just walked right into my little trap here. And Jesus says, Yeah, yeah. And as a matter of fact, that fulfills a biblical prophecy. And all of a sudden, it occurs to the chief priests and elders, Oh, he might be talking about us. Duh. And the crowds, they get it. And the chief priests and the elders don't want to do anything to him because they realize the crowds understand that Jesus is a prophet and has rightly called them on the carpet for their desire to control and, and minimize a grace which is uncontrollable. It's, it's a great and powerful story and also a great little debating trap that Jesus sets for his opponents. Won't stop them from trying to trap him, but they're not as good at it as he is with them. So what's the aftermath of this parable for us? Uh, it's always to me so important to recognize how misused one line in the story is, and it's the line where, it's, where Jesus is saying, he says to, to you, uh, which is the chief priests and the elders, the, the, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people whose, uh, uh, fr- uh, whose lies uh, uh, bear the fruit of repentance. And the sad thing about that is, in voluminous detail over the centuries, Christian theology has said, that's the Jewish people. It's it's being taken away from them and given to Gentile Christians. And and this justifies violence and discrimination to Jewish people who sold out Jesus and and let him down. And as a result, the kingdom's been stolen from them. They're like the tenants. Uh, They deserve to be killed that's not what Jesus said at all. It's actually couldn't be further from the truth and that's where those statistics are important. Six times in this chapter, it's very clear that the Jewish people as a whole, they get it, they're listening to Jesus. It's just this narrow cadre of leaders who are trying to maintain control of everything. They don't wanna hear about it. It's from them that it's being taken and given to people whose lives befit the fruits of repentance. And just a couple of verses before Jesus specifically identifies who that is. He says, you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom before you guys because when they recognized their sin, they repented. Could you please do that, chief priests and elders? Come on, just quit trying so hard to keep goodness away from everybody else, and they couldn't listen to it. We as Christians centuries later need to make sure that that misunderstanding never gets perpetuated. It's sad to me. That, that When we first started like going to events at Congregation Emanuel in Waukesha, we could just walk into their building the way you can just walk into our building. You can't do that nowadays. The doors are always locked, even when there's a scheduled event. There's someone at the door to let people in. On their big holidays, they have extra security, because there's still so much violence towards synagogues and towards Jewish people. Um, And and most of that just comes from, I don't know, some sort of craziness out there, but to the extent any of it's ever justified by a verse like this one, um, we have to understand that that is wrong and that is so taken out of context. Uh, It's the exact opposite of what Jesus would have been saying. So I think that's, that's really important. The other thing I think we get wrong with this section of Matthew chapter 21 is we just forget about the parable itself. Uh, the, the eight verses that Jesus crashed. We kind of get hung up on the discussion afterwards with the chief priests. But the parable itself is written to whom? It's written to people who are saying, leave me alone. So it's written. It's, it's told to all of us in those moments in our life when we do that. And the point of the story is that, that, that God, when we're in that leave me alone thing, God just keeps sending grace and love and people into our path at an ever-escalating level uh, of of people who want to pull us back from our isolation or our selfishness or our hurt or or whatever it is. Um, God has no intent or desire to leave us there. God tries to change it. I think the hard, there are a lot of hard parts about that, right? Tons of them. But I think you know, we, we as followers of Jesus, we, we make mistakes in this area because sometimes we're the ones who, who recognize that somebody's in a bad place. They're in one of those leave-me-alone things. Maybe for a while we do leave them alone, but then eventually we feel like, well, we can't leave them alone. You know, we got to reach out. we got to be there for them. And, and we do, and, and they reject it. They, they don't want it. Well, when you've tried that, when you've tried to reach out, and when somebody rejects it, What's one of our kind of common reactions to that? Well, like, well, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to reach out to that person again. Uh, I'm never going to reach out to anybody again. The fact that you notice that they were in a bad place to begin with is probably an indication that even if you reach out to them, they're probably still going to be in a bad place. In other words, we just need a lot of grace in those moments that sometimes when you reach out, somebody's not ready for it, it's not, not the right time, place, or whatever. Uh, or, or, or it's exactly the right thing, but they, they can't receive it. And, and so maybe with them or maybe with somebody else, you try it again at a different time or a different place. And in the meantime, rather than resent them for being in a bad place, you are gracious to them. So that's important. And then sometimes we're on the other end of the equation, right? We're the ones saying, just, just leave me alone. But somebody won't leave us alone. They, they kind of butt into everything. Um, um, what we can all be working on is in moments like that to, to uh, at least thank the person. You know, I really appreciate that. It's not a good time, not a good place. Not right now. Sometimes they're actually offering something that we legitimately don't need. It's okay to say that too. Uh, just on both ends of the equation, we, we just need a lot of grace towards each other. And, and the thing is, we all, we all understand the kid who, who's pouting and says, leave me alone. Um, but we all want to grow up, right? We all want to grow up spiritually. And so part of growing up spiritually is, is trying every once in a while, and if rejected, not taking that personally. And at the same time, every once in a while, when we're in a bad place, if somebody kind of intrudes into that and you just don't want them there not being as angry with them about that, and, and in fact, being at least appreciative for the attention. You gotta kinda know who you are. Gotta know what? Your purpose in life. I know my purpose in life. Next time I see Barb, she'll probably be sitting on the couch doing a crossword puzzle. And, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to slide up next to her and I'm going to put my arm around her and I'm going to use my other arm and I'm probably going to steal that pen right out of her hand so she can't even complete the word she's working on. And she's going to be so annoyed at me. She's going to just say, leave me alone. The language of love, right? you got to know your purpose in life. Matthew. Matthew knew his purpose. He begins his gospel with the birth of one that he remembers to tell the rest of us is Emmanuel, God with us. And he ends his gospel with Jesus' promise, I will be with you always to the end of time, to the end of time. God is just always with us. As much as we want to say, leave me alone for bad reasons and good reasons, God keeps getting in our way. And, and the amazing thing about that is, is that when we have a little insight into the reality of who God is, then we realize that that presence of God in, in a moment or an eternity, in proximity to you or offered universally to the world in Jesus Christ, that, that presence is the very definition of the grace of God, which is the best and maybe only gift any of us needs to live.